Are you living the crazy life of a sports parent? This is Sports Parenthood, the podcast packed with cool conversations with sports people, coaches and professionals for rookie sports parents just like you. You'll hear nuggets of gold in every episode with your hosts, fellow sports parents, John and Tiffany Bonacera. Football is the most popular organised sport in Australia, with more than 1.76 million players, almost twice as many players as any other football code. Whether you call it football or soccer, more sports parents are signing up their kids to play. And we did exactly that. We signed our eldest daughter to play with the Bell South Football Club in Canberra when we were living down there when she was seven years old. And by default, our youngest daughter started playing peewees at the same time at the tender age of four. Many a winter morning we stood on the <laughs> sideline watching them in the freezing cold and when we say freezing. It was literally It was freezing. freezing. <laughs> yeah, and uh, lots of tears, et cetera, from the goalies in particular and I'm sure that you guys can all relate. And the parents. Yeah, a few hot <laughs> coffees anyway. Eight years on and with both of them continuing to show an interest in pursuing soccer here in Sydney, we were interested to know more about the pathways available for them to reach their potential. Other parents seemed to be taking a little more of a focused approach than us and we started to second guess ourselves. And as a result, we asked the question, should kids be specialising in soccer from a young age? In this episode, you'll hear from David Mason, currently the CEO of the Manly Warringah Football Association, which incorporates over 18,500 football players the biggest football association in Australia, and Manly United Football Club. He's worked at every level of the game, including Sydney FC and the Socceroos. David explains why community sport provides a grounding experience for budding players, the importance of letting kids be kids, along with some insight on those development pathways. Here's our conversation with David. fortunate enough to work in um, in sport for 25 going on 25 years um, I started out as a journalist believe it or not and mm-hmm. then moved into sports publicity worked with a, a company called Hanson Sports Media with a good friend of mine Ian Hanson and yes spent a lot of time um, learning from him and working with the Australian swimming team and from there jumped into football and progressed through doing publicity to start with for Northern Spirit and then Sydney FC. While I was at Sydney FC, I did some other roles around football management and operation, game day operations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then worked with the Socceroos for four years, which was an unbelievable highlight for me. And now I've come back to, to try and bring it all together in the area that I love, in the sport that I love. So I'm thoroughly enjoying it. It's a big shift, mate, going from uh, an elite pathway somewhere like Sydney FC and Northern Spirit and work working for Football Australia to to go back and work in a participation-based role, uh, albeit a CEO and overseeing, obviously, uh, a huge amount of, uh, of staff and players at various levels. Can you tell us about the transition to that? Yeah, it was interesting. Like, obviously, you, you said, you know, working in, a, in an elite environment, it's sort of like you've got a job to do and you do it. And if you can't do it, you move aside and step aside. So I was used to uh, used to that environment and really enjoyed that environment, but working with volunteers is very different. You know, mm-hmm. you got people who are finishing their 10-hour shift and then, you know, they, mm-hmm. they, they sit behind their computer at nighttime. So 
I see my role or our role as an association is basically doing as much work as possible to make life as easy as possible for the people who, who are quite honestly the lifeblood of community sport. You know, I've got my own sort of, I'll, I'll call them morals and things that I believe in, in terms of the way you should operate when you're um, when you're either working or in life in general. And that's around good people and relationships and being mm-hmm. honest with people. And I don't think you can go too far wrong if you do that. So mm-hmm. I've um, tried to translate what I knew and the advantage of, I think I have is because I've worked at every level of the game, I can take a broad view of most of the things that I'm confronted with. Mm. That's how I've sort of transitioned. It took me a little while, mm. but I'm really, I'm thoroughly enjoying it now. I, it's really changed my perspective even of the importance of letting kids be kids so that they continue their love affair and journey of sport. But actually, you know, in in retrospect, I think it helps kids who end up being elite athletes to start their community sporting life with um, with a grounded attitude. So I guess on that, football uh, is the most popular organised sport in Australia. From the perspective of sports parents, David, why do you think they're signing their kids up to play football? I often ask myself that question, but I, I think football is, um, football's, I, I think a lot of parents see it as a safe sport. Okay. Um, I think it's a it's a, it's a good sport in terms of uh, you learn teamwork and um, but I think you can with, with football you can play the same game the same way as the big boys pretty early and pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I think some of the other sports and you know I've played A grade rugby league and club rugby when I was younger. Um, I, I just think they you know they struggle with the um, physicality at a young age and you know a, a small soccer player can get by for a little while. Yeah. Whereas if you you struggle with some of those sides differentials you um you know in some of the other sports it's hard but i also think you know to give football a rap you know because of its numbers it's well organized and it's easy to grade kids into a like-for-like competition when they're young. Mm. The more people you have, if you've got 100 people, you can grade them quite easily into groups of 10 where they have, they play competitive games against kids, roughly their um, their capabilities on a weekly basis. I think it allows them to to not either get carried away with themselves if they're winning 10 nil every week mm. or start to feel despondent if they're losing 10 nil every week. Mm. Absolutely. And funny you say that because we certainly talk primarily to our youngest daughter who is 10 and plays in an under 11s competition and we always talk about how exciting it is when when their games are you know 2-1 and nil all and one nil and mm-hmm. and we say that that's what soccer is all about sweetheart not your football you know not 10 nil 12 nil up or down you yep. need the teams learning a lot if that's happening and that's that's a, that's a very similar sort of attitude when you go and watch a uh, a professional game as well you know it's nice to see your team win 48 nil if it's rugby league or 7 <laughs> nil if it's soccer but they're not the games you remember the mm-hmm. ones you remember are the ones that stick with you are the ones that go right down to the wire um, and it's fun and it's tense and it's I think that's Agreed. what sports all about it's a contest there's a suggestion mate and and perhaps whether it's in Australia or not I'm not sure but the earlier the earlier kids can hone their soccer skills and techniques the better their chances are of making it to an in inverted commas the next level what are your thoughts I don't agree with it to be honest I mean soccer overseas and I keep using the word soccer I'm on well, we're soccer interchanging it as well <laughs> yeah it doesn't bother me um, I think most people know what the sport is but yes. I think overseas a lot of kids don't really have that option um, because there's not too many sports being played. Mm. But here in Australia, you do have that option. And I think as a, as a young person, if you specialise too early, your body doesn't, your body just gets used to doing one thing. Mm. Yeah. And then as you get older, um, you can have all sorts of problems um, in terms of injury. Mm. But I also think, you know, 
some of our greatest socceroos and some of our greatest athletes grew up playing a whole range of sports. Mm-hmm. Like I played soccer with Ivan Cleary until we were 17. All right. He never even played rugby league except for the school. And then all of a sudden he goes off and plays footy and two years later he's the full, he's manly's fullback. Yeah, absolutely. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think it hurts. I think sometimes the over pressure, I think sometimes the over pressure of kids at that age actually has a greater risk of burnout than it has a greater risk of them not being good enough. We also spoke with a lady a couple of weeks ago, mate called Dr. Deborah Latouf. She's involved in talent identification and she spoke quite a bit about the importance of quality coaching at key stages of development in the role that you have and obviously all of the staff that are there in the Manly Football Association. Tell us about the importance of quality coaching in football pathways. I think quality coaching and engaging coaching is important no matter what level or age Mm. you're playing any sport. Mm. There's no doubt in my mind that the one person who dictates whether a kid has a good experience, whether that's soccer or cricket or netball or swimming, is the coach. Mm. So good coaching and also engaging coaching is critical. But I also, whether that's just your local under sixes, and we spend a fair bit of time and resources um, at, at grassroots level, we employ a coach education officer who goes out and runs courses for parents. It can be that simple as in the, a parent just having a little idea of what they're doing when their six-year-old starts playing. But if you talk about the and I hate using the word elite. I, ha- I hate using the word elite, but mm. when, when in the talented pathway as well, I think it's important to for coaches to acknowledge the the, um, the age group of the kids that they're involved with. I think it's it's a very very and football in Australia has got a curriculum that you know a lot of people a lot of the good coaches stick very closely to with a few of their own little nuances, but it talks about discovery phases and and skill acquisition phases before they even get to the competitive phase. Yeah. So you know, from the six to nine year olds, you're just trying to get them to fall in love with the game, mm. um, and it's all about fun and it's all about discovery. Then they move into the skill acquisition, which mm-hmm. is more to do with the touches of the ball, and then you don't actually teach people how to play the the competitive part of the game until they're you know 13 14 15 16 and i think it's important to to allow kids to enjoy their journey through um, as to whether or not they ended up being a talented player or a community-based player. I, I think it's important that you recognise where they're at and what stage they're at when you're coaching. Yeah, it's an interesting one. So some of the people that I've, you know, that are in sort of our network and, and I'm aware of, they're a kind of I don't know how to describe it, but academies that specialize in these, um, you know, specialize in upskilling. upskilling. And what are your thoughts on those types of programs? I don't know if that's a difficult question to ask from your position, but would you have a comment to make on that? Yes. It's a difficult question for someone in my position, but I'm more than happy to answer it. Go ahead, please. That's why I'm here. Um, I, I, like most things, I think you have good academies and you can have bad academies, just like you can have a good football club or a bad football club. Yes. Um, I'm all for if a young kid feels as though he wants to do a bit of extra training, mm-hmm. whether that can be a kid who wants to be an elite player or whether that's a kid who just loves the sport and wants to go and have a kick mm-hmm. and paying for that extra training session because you, we, we go back to having an engaged coach and a good coach. Mm. Sometimes those guys do it for a living and you, you pay a bit of money. Mm. But I, I don't see, a, I don't really see the need if a kid wants to be a talented football player or a talented cricketer, you don't need to go and do all this extra academies, running up and down the field, getting up at six o'clock in the morning to do a session before school. Mm. You know, 
Because I know what's going on and it's an interesting one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So on that, there is a perception that kids at a particular age and they're not not at that sort of age, I guess, that our experts have said uh, are a specialisation age. So you're sort of talking about your mid to late teens. They, They would be younger than that. Parents, for example, have their eyes on a particular pathway for their children. My question around that is, and I sort of started to get a bit anxious about our lack of vision for a pathway for our daughter who has her, you know, who is keen on soccer. Where does that sort of come into it? I've got a kid here who's, you know, looking to do something in the future, but how do I know which pathways to send her on? There's two ways I'll answer this question. That, like for football slash soccer, mm-hmm. the pathway for me is actually there. There is an easy, not an easy pathway. There's a pathway that's actually right in front of you, mm-hmm. and you start to play the game. You play for your local community-based club. If you're identified as someone who's talented, then you play for your local representative club. Yeah, and then from there, you can be spotted by a state team, or you can move on to an A league or a W league team. There's a pretty like it's not like tennis or golf where you could be absolutely anywhere mm-hmm. there there is like a like a designated pathway so to speak yeah but when i was working with the and I, now i'm going to contradict that so when i was working with the Socceroos leading into the 2015 Asian Cup. Um, Ange Postacoglu made every single player after dinner. Um, this is in the sort of two weeks leading up to the tournament. He made every player after dinner and every staff member who was a Socceroo stand up after dinner and explain their journey as to how they got to that day where they first pulled the shirt yeah. on and what it meant to them. And you had some of the greatest players of you know, our generations like Tim Kale, Mark Bresciano, Craig Moore was a staff member, um, Ange himself, and none of them had the same pathway. None right. of them had the exact same pathway. They all went in different directions. Some of them oh, that's a great story. had the, the blessed run, so to speak, where they, you know, they played for Australia at under 17s and played in the under 20s and then went to an Olympics. And, mm-hmm. and then you got someone like Tim Cahill who couldn't really see that he was making it, was told he was too small. So at 15, packed up his bags and took off overseas. Mm. I think that's the beauty of football. I don't think there's a designated path to get to the top. Mm. Ultimately, I think what kids need to do or and parents need to guide them is that they've got to do what they want to do and they've got to follow their own path and just go out and play, enjoy the game and, and your pathway should take care of itself dependent upon what your ability allows. There's certainly some food for thought there. In in other countries, and when we reference these other countries, we're probably referring, you know, to parts of Europe and predominantly South America. Kids are, are shown to be playing, we'll call it informal soccer on the street from a young age and doing it for hours a day. And you did talk about the choices that we have in yep. Australia, which is probably where the differential lay for our families. But when they're practicing their skills constantly, how do we as a nation compete with this? Like I remember back to my childhood, I used to come home from school and I was fortunate enough to live right next to a park. Mm. So as soon as I came home from school or on the weekends, I was across the park all day, every day. My mum would yell out just as the sun goes down to come home. I love yeah. those Some stories. days we'd kick around playing soccer. The next day we'd, be, we'd have a footy out. The kids just don't do that anymore. And I think, you know, that's a product of, that's a product of society in terms of it's, you know, it's not as quite as free and easy as it used to be. Mm. But also too now, you know, like the, the, I wasn't training four times a week when I was yeah. 11 years old yeah. and I was actually playing for Manly when I was that age. Right. Um, I don't know. I think so, in some respects that free play – 
allows you to remain in love with the game and the yep. more times you touch the ball, the better. Yep. So that's hence why soccer and, and the other sports do it too. Instead of like I was when I was nine, I was playing 11 of, 11 aside on a full-size field. There you mm. go. Now we've tried to shrink the field, mm. limit the number of people so you actually get more touches on the ball. So I think we sort of at the moment, um, and, and as I said, some of the other sports are the same. They're sort of replicating that free play, Yeah, you know, not as many people and go out and have a kick in a competitive sort of um, environment. And I don't know whether that's good or bad. I still think there's great benefit in kids of any age, no matter who they are, just going out and having a, a kick around with their brothers and sisters or their friends. Mm. Do you see then the, the I guess, the, the move away from that sort of, let's call it free play, um, you know, that you were talking about in your childhood, do you see the impact of that kind of um, behaviour, if you like, and how and, and, and what that looks like with these kids coming through? Just, just to kind of understand my question in terms of... Are you suggesting, do, does he see the lack of it in yeah, the Yeah, what does children? that, yeah, yeah, maybe. Well, what are your thoughts, I guess, on this generation? Yeah, it's a hard one. Oh, I don't know. I'm a, it's very diff- yeah, it's real it's really difficult to remember what, what football was like or what the standard was yeah. like thirty years ago and I give my age away a little bit, but <laughs> I now sit down here and watch you know, my son or my you know under fifteen, under sixteen team play down here now, and I think to myself, no, I was never that good mm, mm, at that age. Mm. I, I think that the caliber of our child athletes these days in any sport is just naturally better than what it used to be. Mm. I, I know that's just progression; that's life. It I mean, certainly is in rugby. Usain Bolt runs a lot faster than Carl Lewis did. Mm. Yeah, you know, absolutely, and 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 a lot of that comes with I'll call I'll use the word professionalism, but it might not be the right way to do it but mm. now you know people are telling you what you should eat and yes. you know that you need to sort of build up a little bit and the sport science that's come into to sport when I was a kid I, there was none of that no no none no of that whatsoever <laughs> you'd go to training you'd probably have maccas for lunch you'd go to training and there was no ice baths there was no warm downs after training it was it was a lot it was a different time now one thing that may not have changed so much from uh today's athletes to the past are uh, let's call it the X factors or particular traits that you've seen in players that have gone on to, in inverted commas, make it or succeed in the goals that they've chosen Mm. to do. Do you see any common traits that you think are, um, are prevalent and that are, that are desirable, you know, across all codes? I think the only, one of the only traits in any sport, one of the only traits that every athlete that makes it has and and no athlete that um makes it doesn't have is some um, desire you know you can have all the ability in the world mm. but you know when you go through that transition age of 16 17 18 19 if life's you no know, life's other fun takes over i think you know every sport and and football's no different it's made up of a collection of people that have got different physical attributes and mm. different physical abilities just like you know john like rugby league does where you work but ultimately it's the commitment and the desire mm. that Get you from being a talented eighteen-year-old to someone who can um, who can make it to the next level. Well, I guess on that point, then, and I'm speaking from the perspective of sports parents, then we only have a limited role as well. So, and I, we, John and I, talk about that a lot. Mm. You know, we can do the ferrying, we can we can feed you, and we can pay your fees to a certain extent. But at the end of the day, I can't do the soccer for you, or I can't do the swimming for you. And we often don't we say that to our kids. At the end of the day, your surf motivation is going to make yep. or break you. And it's and and that's whether or not you just want to participate mm. at a community level, as we talked about. So both our children. They both play community soccer Absolutely. at the moment and, you know, on the odd occasion you come home on a Wednesday afternoon and they're, they're tired and they're like, oh, training. And we're like, well, 
on a very simple level, sweetheart, you made a commitment to play for this team well, for this season. Yeah. And it, yeah. you committed to training. So yeah. you're going regardless yep. of whether you would like to or not yep. because your team's dependent. Yeah, so I guess it's that motivation. That's right. And at the end of the year, if you still feel like that, yes. sorry, but then at the end of the year, if, you know, a kid feels like that, then they say, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. And you support them and Absolutely. wrap your arms around them and say, what do you want to do? Yes. And and that's, we've had those conversations too, where we say next season, if it's not your, yep. if it's not your chosen path, that's sweet. We'll go and try something else. I would much rather, I would much rather, and this is a Manly United thing, not so much a grassroots football thing. I would much rather have the knowledge that every kid who's currently down here in a in a talented program um, is still playing the sport at 40 yes. than Agreed. having two or three than having two or three of them Go on and that might um, join Lucas Neal on the name on the grandstand. Absolutely. Mm. I think it's I think from our point of view, where we are in the landscape, um, it's far more important to make sure that they stay in love with the game and for the really talented ones, give them all the tools as possible to make them as good as they can be and then they're going to step above us. Yes. So I think it's more important to um, to have a, a little bit of a combination of both, but ultimately you just want people to love playing the game. And keep playing. And parents to understand that as well. Mm, that's, an, that's a good point. Something we haven't touched on specifically is is the engagement of girls within football or soccer. Yep. And it's something that's grown exponentially in Australia and uh, not only at a participation level but certainly at an elite level. And in 2023 yep. we're hosting the FIFA Women's World Cup along with New Zealand. Can you give us a bit of insight into, into girls and women's soccer in Australia? It's been growing, you know, sort of bubbling under the surface, growing for at least 10 years. Um, I know down here in, at Manly Warringah, I think our percentage of girls has grown from about 27 to 31, I think it was this year, over the last three or four years. So there's no doubt that there's been a little bit of a, a spike, but mm. that's something that's been coming coming for a while. Mm. I, I don't I just think that similar to when the boys start, I think the girls see it as a, a nice, fun, active way to yeah. mm. get out and play sport. You know, they get into it early, they stay in it early, then they, they remain in the sport. But what the World Cup, the Women's World Cup will do and what the W League to a lesser extent has done for the last five or six years is just to give kids that aspirational thing to aim for. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably one of the most important factors for elite professional athletes that I think when they live in the bubble, they don't quite understand and comprehend is that they are, even through their actions, they're inspiring kids to to start playing the game that they're playing. Um, and I think that's probably one of the things that the Women's World Cup will do. Mm. You know, hopefully, touch wood, there'll be a whole heap of, a whole generation of girls that can watch, you know, Sam Kerr and Chloe Legazzo and all those girls, Ellie Carpenter, you know, play a World Cup on Australian soil. I've been fortunate enough to go to three men's World Cups. I'm sorry, two men's World Cups. And it's just an, an amazing experience. I can't wait to do it here. Nice. And maybe even a Remy Sampson. Maybe even a Remy Sampson. There you go. Or a Carly Johnson. You, that, that's that's the target. I think it would be fantastic to be able to, for the girls, and it, and it also gives the elite or the talented young mm. players in that 21 to 16 bracket, it gives them some something to really aspire to. It so you know, does. For, for us to be able to get a girl to play for the for the Matildas, it'd be amazing to do it on home soil would be even, even better. Greater. But for me, like I said before, I'd be much more um I'd be much more happy if as a sixty five year old if I walk down the park and I see Remy Seamson playing for Belrose Terry Hills in the in the over forties. How good. <laughs> good. Definitely. Yeah, I like that idea as well. Get quite emotional about it, thinking about it. 
Um, so from that very high high and that aspirational thought um, that we've now got in our minds about that that World Cup, there is something that's grounded us, I guess, all this year a little bit, and that's um, COVID-19, uh, which has um, forced change in sport. In your role, what has been your experience? And I guess from there, what does the future look like? Oh. Oh, yeah, where to start? Yeah. Um, if I look back on the last six months, it's been hard. I don't think anyone can deny that it's been a, an enormous challenge that no one in any position of influence or, or leadership has ever had to go through before. Mm. And that's from Scott Morrison and Gladys mm. Berejiklian all the way down to people like me who are just running local football competitions. Mm. None of us can lean on experience. None of us can pick up the phone to a mentor and say, you know, how'd you go about it? What'd, what did you do when you went through this? Yes. But I just... I just went back to, you know, what I spoke about earlier on with how I've tried to deal with it is um, relationships, good people, and be honest and upfront and have a can-do attitude right from the start. Mm. Um, it has been a challenge where we honestly had no idea. I'll never forget where I was the day when all, when, when it all when sort it of stopped. Down. I thought, wow, this is going to be this is going to be different. This is, this is going to be different when we when we got told that we we had to stop. This is big. But I think what it has done, and this is mainly now talking at a grassroots level, is that we got all of the seventeen clubs um, down here in the, at Cromer Park into a meeting, and we said, none of us know what's going to happen over the next few months. But the most important thing is that we um, health and safety is the number one priority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we're and we're in this together. We mm-hmm. need to be united because if people you know, go off, running off and, yep. you know, it's going in different directions, mm. we won't play. And the, the 17 clubs and the association have been absolutely amazing. And I must say, you know, we've got great support from Council and Football mm. New South Wales and the FFA. I think it's been uh, for us to get, which is almost, I think it's about 85% of a season mm-hmm. under the circumstances has been an unbelievable um, achievement. But I think what it's done is it's given a lot of people, it actually gave a lot of people the opportunity to step back and reflect on how important it is. Absolutely. All of a sudden, everyone was thinking, what, you mean I can't go and play soccer or what, I can't play netball? Mm -hmm. And I think it's allowed us to sort of reset some of the (laughs) sports parenting where people think that the decision of the referee or whether they can play at Kareel Bay or, or Cromer Park, none of that matters. It's... I've got an expression that I use a fair bit that um, that makes people laugh or upsets them, but ah. it's basically our sport is is eleven fat guys or eleven kids and a ball, mm. um, and the sooner everyone understands that's all that it is, the better that they will be. And I think this year, of course, we've still had a few issues along the way, but it's mm. just been a really good grounding experience for everyone to remember why we actually get involved in community sport. I'll give you guys a bit of a wrap here, mate. Um, our children are involved in in many sports uh, across, you know, different levels and the communication from you guys I have found to be key and communication yep. in, in any industry at any time is important but in a time like this it was always well received and it was always clear and concise and we as parents or involved participants we, we knew what was expected of us immediately and we knew when things were coming back on on track and when we were going to need to start making our own preparations. And and I, I'll give you guys a wrap for that because it's not the easiest thing to do to a broad number of people, but you did it really well. Yeah, thanks, mate. And it's, I'm glad you picked up on that because that was one of our, our key points is that in times of uncertainty, if people have 
have no idea what's going on, they um, start to get their heads filled with um, facts that could be incorrect mm. or, you know, bad thoughts, so to speak. Yep. So there was a period of time there for about four, four to six weeks or whatever it was from when we first went into lockdown to when we came back, whereas I actually made a conscious decision not to watch the TV read the newspaper um, and I just concentrated on getting the facts from government yep. websites mm. and etc cetera, etc cetera. and you know my background is media I was a journo mm-hmm. I, you know I, I love the industry but um, I just wanted to make sure that I was getting the facts mm. whether that was through government or medical websites and I was trying to communicate as early as I could and as concise as I could so that everybody had an idea of what was going on. And the feedback, you know, that's not the first time someone said that, John. So the feedback from a lot of right. people has been that communication was really important. Um, and it's, you know, it's not rocket science. You've got to tell people what's going on. If, if you've got secrets, you've got a problem. So mm, mm, agree. we were up front. So speaking, I guess, of um, information and communication, something happened today. As much as we were happy with the way you know, by and by and large, our players and parents and everyone behaves over here on the northern beaches. It was before my time. It was about four or five years ago. There was a few issues bobbing up, so they started a program in the local competition called Team Discipline Points. Mm-hmm. So each team has got a certain threshold of points um, that they're expected that they're not supposed to go past. Uh, you know, you get one point if you get a red card, um, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Like a driver's uh, license. It's heavily maybe. weighted. Yeah, it's, yeah, it is. But it's heavily weighted towards offences against match officials, mm. et cetera, et cetera. So if you go past a certain threshold, you get a warning. You go past a second threshold, you lose three competition points. And there's a point where if you go past that threshold, you're out, you get you get booted out of the competition. Mm. So we had an incident, you know, a few weeks ago where two under 15 teams um, went past all three thresholds in one go. Um, Mm. You know, it wasn't fun and it wasn't a nice decision to make, but we made the decision that we've got rules and they've Mm. gone past it. So they got removed from the competition. So, Mm. but, for us, that wasn't a hard decision because, you know, it was granted we were, you know, we were talking about 15-year-old boys, but mm. if we've got rules and we're trying to stop it, we had to follow them through. But what really impressed us was the fact that both of the clubs involved, and I'm happy to name that it was Avalon and Forrest Kalani, neither of the clubs took up the option when the team was withdrawn to come in and um, show cause why it shouldn't happen. Mm. They both said, nope, that behaviour is not acceptable. Mm. Well, it's it not set what out. we want. Mm. Um, we're not going to, yeah, we're, we're not going to fight it, so to speak. Um, and that would have been a, a harder decision for them than it was for me because I'm just, you know, I'm just yeah. implementing the rules. They actually had to stare down some of their own mm. teams and members and Which say, I'm sorry, difficult. but this is very difficult to do. And a lot of people wouldn't do it. So today I copped an email, came through, said, have a read of this from Ray Hadley's show. And my first, oh. <laughs> my first thought wasn't a positive one. I no. thought, oh, what's going on here? And, um, you know, they, they'd sent a letter, that club, Forrest Kalani had sent a letter to all their players, um, all 1,200 of them saying, this is unacceptable. And, you know, mm. Ray, you know, picked he, can, he can be critical if you deserve it, but he picked up on it. Absolutely. Mm. And mm. full credit to the club for, um, for agreeing with our stance that, you know, this sort of behaviour is it's not acceptable. We've got mm. eighteen and a half thousand players on the northern beaches. If we need to trim that by a hundred every year by rubbing out mm. teams that misbehave, and it's nowhere near that number, but if we had to, mm. I think you'd find that the number would grow mm. a lot faster because mm. everyone else is having a better experience. People make mistakes. Yes, you need to face the consequences, but my my sincere hope is that all thirty two, whatever it is, of those 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 kids, they come back and play next year yeah, because absolutely. it's important to to everyone that they keep playing. The parents have such a big influence 
on their child's sporting experience. If you could provide any advice in particular, what would it be? Encourage and guide them, but let them tread their own path. I think as a parent, particularly in the younger years, you, you know, you, you said it there, you, you, um, you know more than what they do. So you can guide them in the right direction, but it's got to get to the point where you've got to let live their own life and tread their own path. And I think as long as you're there to, to comfort them and be their parent and not their mate, just let them play. If they're if they're good enough to play for the Socceroos, or they're good enough to play for the Wallabies, or you know the, whatever it is, they'll they'll get there. Parents can never ever give their kids an unfair advantage, but through mm. poor behaviour, they can make them miss out on an opportunity. And I think it's just important to let them let them play, let them go. That's gold. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Sports Parenthood. Please leave a review, share with your friends, or visit our website, sportsparenthood.com.au, to connect. Catch you next week.